Amen. Standing in the promise of Christ, turn your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 39. Exodus chapter 39. Beginning in verse 32. Exodus 39, verse 32. Thus... All of the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. The people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, its bases, the covering of the tanned ram skin, the goat skin, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony, its poles, its mercy seat, the table with its utensils, the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold, its lamps with the lamps set, all its utensils and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar, its grating of bronze, its poles, all its utensils, the basins, and its stand. The hangings of the court, its pillars, its bases, screens for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting. The finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, the garments for his sons, for their service as priests. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. And the Lord, as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put in it the ark of the testimony. You shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall... Bring in the table and arrange it. You shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. You shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the Lord of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. You shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it. Consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stands and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garment. You shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anoint their father, that they may serve me as priests. Their anointing shall admit them to the perpetual priesthood throughout their generation. This Moses did. According to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. 
Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles, raised up its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it. As the Lord had commanded Moses, he took the testimony, put it in the ark, put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamp before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offerings and the grain offerings as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar <coughs> and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Our prayer is that he adds his blessing to its reading. Would you please be seated? And children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church if you're heading that way. This is the final chapter, the final section in our sermon series on the Exodus. God, the covenant king. Yahweh has shown himself throughout this revelation to be providential. The Bible had told us all the way back in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, that the Lord had heard their groanings and was attending to their need. God was providing. That's the story Moses is telling in this part of the Pentateuch. The letter of the Exodus ends with this great display of God's providence. In fact, the greatest display of God's providence. First, we saw God providing the people deliverance from slavery in Egypt. We studied that early in the book. We saw God delivered them from the slaughter of the Hebrew children. God delivered them from the plagues that had struck the Egyptians. God delivered them from the army at the bank of the Red Sea. God delivered them from starvation or dehydration in the wilderness. God delivered them from the opposition of Amalek. God 
then gives the law to deliver the people from their neighbors. However, what the people needed most is what's delivered to them in Exodus 40. I've titled this last sermon, Heaven on Earth. The work is being completed. There's a punctuation being placed on the completion of the giving of the law, the the placing of worship, and the structure of the tabernacle. Moses then takes the task of inspecting everything that's been built, making sure that it accurately reflects what was revealed to him in heaven. But as he does that, there is a question for them and a question for us, two of them. Will God truly be with us? And how will we know that he is? That's a legitimate question for them in the wilderness. Wandering on a road from bondage to conflict. Will God be with us? And how will we know? Let me give you three points for what we're going to navigate this morning. First one is, Yahweh's word is made known to the people. God gave them instruction, and we hear this repeated statement, and they did as God instructed Moses. Then secondly, the tabernacle itself and the ministers are consecrated. And then to finish our study in Exodus with this point, Yahweh is present with his people. Even though high and lifted up, Yahweh condescends and dwells in a tent with his people who dwell in tents. Let me pray, and then we'll begin this study. Father, we are thankful for your holy word. We are thankful for its first delivery to your people, for its preservation today, that we could learn from it, that we could be directed by it. Lord, this particular letter that your servant Moses penned out as you led him is profitable for us. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And in its studying, your people are being equipped and being matured. We're thankful for it. We pray that today as it's punctuated, we would see the thing that we need most you have provided in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray to you. Amen. So let's walk through these three points, okay? The first one is this. You find it in the end of chapter 39 from verse 32 to 43. Yahweh's word is made known and thankfully in this section of the Exodus narrative, it's obeyed. Yahweh's word is made known and obeyed. The tabernacle construction is completed and now the Parts are to be brought for assembly, and Moses has the task of inspecting the work, examining closely what had been constructed. So when he sees, for example, the Ark of the Covenant, he's not just saying, okay, make sure that you have a box that's gold-plated. When Moses inspects the work, he's making sure that what they have accomplished rightly reflects what he saw true in heaven. 
So the items are going to be used for worship, and their quality mattered. And so Moses is giving an inspection of everything that was brought in. I thought about that this week. I thought, boy, can you imagine if we scrutinized each other's quality of worship the way Moses is? Can you imagine the craftsman who brings something in? And the, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but was there anything that was concerning? Like, well, could you go redo that plating? That, that one needs a little more, little more gold plating. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But can you imagine the process of just bringing your item? I thought about the worship leaders who serve us in music every week. And I thought about the time they spend. You know, they arrive early and, and they... They work hard to do something that they care deeply for. And I thought about a worship leader who says, could you, could you just replay that refrain one more time to someone? Oh, and then maybe they say, oh, oh, you're playing a sharp note there. And with my understanding of music, maybe the worship leader says, we want you to play a dull note. Are there dull notes? <laughs> and so the worship leader says to someone, on the team, uh, don't do it like that, do it like this. Oh boy. You know, how does that person respond to that? But for the worship leader, they say, the quality of what we're doing here is not irrelevant. It's not what's most important, but it does matter. And so we're being careful with our worship. And so Moses is inspecting everything that's brought together. And as he inspects it, he confirms These things are just as the Lord commanded. And then he speaks a blessing. Just a simple closing statement. It's the last sentence of chapter 39. Then Moses blessed. I don't know exactly what that blessing sounded like, but I know that there was another blessing that God had instructed Moses to give. It sounds like this. May Yahweh bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you And be gracious to you. May Yahweh turn his face towards you and give you peace. Numbers 6.22. The clear instruction of the Lord was essential. The word of the Lord had been given to the people. And it was necessary in their worship. Hearing what God required. And doing it. It made me think about Romans 10. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone proclaiming? And how will they proclaim unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Moses and he did as he was instructed. And this is true of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We speak the word of Jesus Christ to people who don't know it. And Lord willing, by the work of God the Holy Spirit, they will turn and believe. So the word of the Lord was spoken, the people obeyed it. In chapter 40, we start with the second point. Yahweh's tabernacle and its ministers are consecrated. In verses 1 through 15, you find no less than 11 repetitions of God saying, you shall, you shall, you shall. In verses 2 through 8, It deals with the setting up of the inter-sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, and the surrounding tabernacle. In verses 9 through 11, 
He gives the account of anointing or consecrating the parts of the tabernacle, setting it apart. It would be just for this. In verse 12 through 15, the point of seeing the anointing and the consecration setting the priests apart for their service. Okay, so let's break this down into two sections, verses 1 through 8. In chapter 40, verses 1 through 8, we see the placing of the items of the tabernacle. The Lord spoke to Moses. He repeats this to Moses precisely where the items are to be set, where all the furniture of the tabernacle is supposed to go. Look at verse 2. This is significant for the rest of our learning from this text. The date of the setting up of the tabernacle is made very obvious. On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The tabernacle is going to be set up on New Year's Day. And additionally significant is that we are almost exactly one year removed from the first Passover. So God instructs his people exactly what to build, exactly where to set it when it's assembled, and then tells them exactly when to do it. On the celebration of New Year, the first day. I'm persuaded that the reason for this is to help us see that this is a creation ceremony. By stressing the date, it seems that we are meant to be reminded of God's creation. The tabernacle becoming a symbol of new creation or recreation that God is doing in redeeming his people. So again, I I want you to understand the continuity that God doesn't have these little moments where he's adjusting to our behaviors. And there's not an ebb and flow in God's redemptive work. But rather there is this consistent work of God that is all interconnected. And the tabernacle is absolutely no exception from that consistency. God is pulling together creation and redemption in the tabernacle work. In verses 9 through 15, We see not only that these things are all set exactly right at exactly the same time, but then each of the items must must be consecrated. Moses is told to consecrate all of the items and all of the furniture used for service. These are common objects. There's wood, and there's metal, and there's fabric, and they must be consecrated for holy use. Just as the tabernacle articles are anointed and consecrated, the priests themselves are anointed and consecrated. Moses receives this direct verbal instruction from God. Where to place things, how to set them apart as significant before the people. Now, we know that every part that had been instructed to come together in the tabernacle is for a very specific reason. And we've spent time over the last months discussing why did God want this? And why did God put this there? And why is that there? And why is this curtain here? Every part of it 
mattered and had significant purpose in the worship of God according to all that he had instructed. I want to say to you one more time in this study of Exodus that our worship of God is essential to our very existence. Chapter 40 is dealing as much as any section of the Bible with addressing the question, why am I here? What is my purpose? And God is giving them, redeeming for them, recreating for them the clarity of purpose to worship him. Significant, exclusive worship of God. One commentator says this about the importance of worship according to instruction. Worship is the meeting of natural with supernatural, of creation with creator, of people with God. It is the most important task that people can undertake. It is the visible sign of faith in God. Worship is central to who we are, central to identity. We are worshipers. And as I think about God making clear the instruction and then consecrating these things and stressing the worth of worship for the people, the, the overarching priority of the people worshiping their God, it reminds me of what Jesus taught us about worship in John 4. I think one time before we cross-referenced into John 4 to see a truth from Jesus about the significance of worship and its location in the new covenant. So listen, as I read from John 4, 23, Jesus meets with the woman at the well, and she raises a concern about the geography of worship. Are we supposed to worship in this tabernacle or that tabernacle? Are we supposed to worship in that holy city or this holy city? And Jesus answers the question this way. The hour is coming when neither on that mountain nor in Jerusalem, so referring to the temple, will you worship the Father? But rather the hour is coming and as Jesus stands and speaks to her, Jesus himself says the hour is right now as much as I am here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then there's this unique and I, I think powerful statement. The Father is seeking such to worship him. God, Jesus says, is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such to worship him. Before I move into our last point, uh, let me say a, a, a word about the Father seeking such to worship him. In the garden, at the conclusion of each day, God would arrive and walk with his people. He would enjoy the garden, his creation, 
and his people would delight in him. Except for one day when he arrives in the garden and they hide themselves from him, supposedly, thinking they were hiding themselves from him. And God asks a question, where are you? God, in the garden, after sin, is seeking. Where have the worshipers gone? And the Bible tells us that, in James, that God yearns jealously over the lowercase s spirit of worship that he made to dwell in us. And here, in John 4, Jesus says, the Father is seeking worshipers. He is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So here, God delivers to them painstaking, clear instruction about how to set up and consecrate the place that will symbolize his presence and their fellowship and worship with him. I I, I want to simply say that the worship of God must be imperative to the people of God. Then thirdly, God has not only provided this tabernacle, God has not only provided clear instruction and opportunity to delight and worship in him, but rather, most importantly, Yahweh, high and lifted up, has condescended and joined his people. Yahweh is present with his people. This is, again, we, we talked about this once before. It's a jarring reality that the God of all creation, the God of heaven and earth, says, if you build this tent just the way I say, and then my presence will be there in a tent with you people in a tent in the desert. God makes himself visible to them in a tent being moved by a group of nomads through the desert. Look at verse 34. The Bible tells us the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud. This wasn't the first time they'd seen the cloud. It first appeared to guide and protect them in the Exodus as they were fleeing Egypt. The cloud rested atop the mountain as Moses, the representative gets instruction from God. The cloud had indicated the presence of God at the entrance of that small tent. Remember the temporary tent? as It becomes clear to us that Moses is serving as a sort of priest, as a sort of representative, and so he goes out to that little makeshift tent outside the camp, and the cloud was there. And Moses would go in and meet with God. When he'd come out, it was obvious he had met with God. The cloud covered the completed tent. God, most high, condescends. And if that's striking, you think, wow, that's humbling. A, a tent? I mean, just, I don't, I don't like tent living at all, really. It's been decades 
decades since I imposed that sort of discomfort on myself. <laughs> but if I, if I do go, I like the idea of camping, but if I go to a campground, envy is rampant in my heart as soon as I see those people with those RVs. I get it. This tent signifies a certain humility or a lowliness, even in all of its ornate decor. David felt it. David felt it. The ark's coming to Jerusalem. David's wrestling with a sense of burden, a a guilt even. David says, "I, I live in a house made of cedar. And God lives in a tent. And he goes to Nathan and he says to Nathan, I want to build God a great house. And Nathan is wise, and he's like, it sounds like a good idea. But then, no, God says, no. He says, you're not going to do that. And listen to what he says. God says to David, has there ever been a time with the children of Israel when I haven't lived in this tent? Has there ever been a time when I asked them to build me a palace? 2 Samuel 7 also known as the Davidic Covenant. You see what God is saying, as long as my people are in tents, I will be with them there. That's the power of Exodus 40. I will be with them where they are. Uh, let me see. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. You know that we're going to Hebrews next. Look at verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, I had the opportunity to serve Brian and Julie this past Friday as Julie's father had passed away, and I shared this text with them uh, at his memorial service. Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. God came to bear flesh and blood because that's where we are. He put on himself flesh and blood. That's where we are. He comes to the middle of the camp and lives in the tent. The people lived in tents. You see, in this tent, you see it in the temple, you see it in Jesus. By the way, John says that Jesus came from heaven and tabernacled. Among us. Good news with great joy. Emmanuel, God with us. And the Bible says that as the cloud came on the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud isn't the glory of God, but it is the visible envelopment of the glory of the Lord. It's brilliance. Contained within the cloud. 
A similar filling took place when Solomon consecrated the temple in 1 Kings 8. The Bible says, when the, king, or when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And it is true of the heavenly temple. The glory of the Lord fills the temple. Revelation 15, 8. The sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues and the seven angels were finished. The glory of God. You've heard me say it before. This is what we call the Shekinah glory. It's, it's that glory of God that you feel. The priests were pushed out of the room by the glory of God. Look at verse 35. Speaking of being pushed out of the room, a very important detail. Moses couldn't go in to the tent of meeting. Wow. All of a sudden, Moses is excluded. Why, why could he not go in? It was Moses who entered right into the cloud on the top of Mount Sinai. It was Moses who went into the small tent of meeting, the, the temporary tent, when the cloud was there. Why, why is he not able to go in here? Well, most basically, the answer is that the tabernacle is now, for all practical purposes, God's house. It'd be like our friend Matt Ross building a house. And it comes a point in building a house when you have to put locks on the doors because there's enough done that someone could break in and do serious damage. And so you put a lock on the door. And usually the, the contractor keeps the key because he's there every day doing work. And when the work was all done and the owner, the person who had issued instruction for the construction project comes and inspects everything and says, yes, this is just what I had hoped for. And the contractor says, okay, well, I think we will really enjoy living here together. That's ludicrous, right? The builder relinquishes the key. It says, here, the project is done. That's what Moses does at this point. The project is done. This is God's tent. So most simply, it's inappropriate for Moses to stay there. Later, there are people appointed by God who would be able to enter the tabernacle at appointed times in appointed ways. The cloud didn't always stay in the tabernacle. Sometimes the cloud would rise above the tabernacle. And when that happened, there were a group of people, for example, who would go in and start packing everything up. Have you ever thought about that? We hear about the high priest going in and the, the danger that it had. But you ever thought about all the people who had to pack it up and move it? Why, why could they go in? They didn't have the robes and the bells and the rope. They just went in and started putting stuff away. Because the cloud didn't always occupy that space. And when it wasn't there, the tent was just a fancy tent. What made it significant in their worship was the presence of God. That's what they needed. They didn't need a, a cool city hall. They needed the presence of God. The Bible says in verse 37, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle... People would go in, they would pack it up and move it. However, now listen, listen to this. We know that the tent is 
erected on New Year's Day. And from Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, we know that for 48 days, the tent and the cloud stay just where they are. The Bible says uh, in Numbers 10, from the first day of the first month, as stated in chapter 40, verse 1, to the 20th day of the second month, when Israel finally left Sinai, according to Numbers 10. During those 48 days, the instruction is given to Moses, which we read in Leviticus and Numbers. Numbers chapter 1 through 10, verse 11. The tent stays there from the first day to day 48. At this point, the book comes to an end. God is with his people. But it leaves us understanding that there is a new chapter beginning in God's plan for his people, but it also leaves us with a clear answer. Leviticus 1.1, the very next verse, look across the page, the very next verse contains the word of Moses and reads, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. God was with and leading his people. There's so much providence in the book. He is a covenant king. We read the story of Moses and we read about failure. We read the story of the people and we read about failure. Read the story about Pharaoh and we read about failure. We read accounts of Aaron and we read about failure. We read about these high priests and we read about failure. But the one thing that is true of this entire revelation is the provident work of God and the confession that he never fails. He heard their groaning. He came to rescue them in their bondage. He provides for them a way of escape. He gives them food and water in the wilderness. He instructs them carefully how they ought to behave with each other and then gives them instruction about building a place where he would be with them. That's the greatest provision of the book. God with his people. What more could any people ask for than to have God? To have heaven? To have eternal life with God? What would a man gain if he has the world but yet his soul is lost from the delight and eternal life of God. So wonderful as the completed tent was, wonderful as manna in the wilderness and water from a rock, these things are just a shadow of God's provision. We know from the nature of the new covenant that God has delivered us from slavery to sin delivered us from the slaughter of death, delivered us from the the fiery dart and assaults of Satan himself, delivered us by the body and blood of the Lamb, delivered us to the very presence of God. You see, in the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, which we've looked back at often, it's a better covenant. It's 
It's got a better priest. In the new covenant, God in Christ is not just in the camp. Christ is the camp. Listen to Ephesians 2.20. Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we don't just have God's presence in our city or in our neighborhood or in our house, but rather with us, in us, indwelling us by his Spirit. This, this chapter is really a marvelous conclusion, isn't it? Can you see the people? All the people standing around the tent in the middle. And then the cloud comes and descends on the temple. And the glory of God becomes visibly evident to them. And they all stagger backward, maybe like at the base of the mountain. Wow. That is the obvious answer to the question, will God be with us? We see it. Now here's the question, new covenant believer, is God with us? How do you know? How do we know God's with us? Hmm. When when is it most obvious to us that God is present? Jesus answers the question. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Be- because you see, if, if I may say, we could accidentally get really individualistic about the presence of God. Because the passage I just read says that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we we could miss the rest of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, Christ is the cornerstone. We are being built together into a temple. Sealed with the Spirit for sure, each of us. But together as a temple. The body of Christ. Not the dismembered fingers and arms and legs of Christ. But rather the collective temple where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. I am among them. When the body of Christ gathers in corporate worship, that is the place where the new covenant believer witnesses the special presence of God, the evident presence of God. You see, the, the people struggled with doubt that God was with them, didn't they? That's what got them in so much trouble with the golden calf. Moses was gone, and they thought for sure, God probably isn't going to be with us, but he seems to really favor Moses, so as long as Moses is with us, then God will be with us. And then Moses disappears on the mountain. doesn't come back down. And the people are afraid the power of God won't be with us the way it has been, and we will perish here. And so, in an appetite to be assured that God was with them, they build a false image of power that represents God, but it gives them some sort of confidence. 
They wanted to be assured of the presence of God. And the very thing they did to try to assure themselves of the presence of God, in fact, almost cost them nearness with God. God had actually said at one point, I'm just going to start over with Moses. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. How do we know that God is with us? Jesus answers the question, well, when you gather together, it becomes obvious, doesn't it? You are a people of one confession, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. It's obvious. God is there. Then the author of Hebrews says a similar thing. Let's start in verse 22. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as two or three and witness as in the wilderness God is in our midst, as the habit of some is, but encourage each other all the more as the day of the Lord gets closer and closer. As, as it might become tempting to doubt, is God still with us? What's happening? Haven't we been telling people he's coming again for millennia? And yet here we are. And scoffers are constantly saying, yeah, right. He's not coming again. You're on your own here. Then the author of Hebrews says, draw close to each other with full confidence in the faith. So much more as you might be tempted to doubt that the day of the Lord is surely ours in Christ. Is the presence of God the thing that we want most? I can't remember if it was Will or Josh who raised that question. They're in the wilderness and they've rebelled, they've defied the instruction of God and they're afraid that God's going to leave them. And in that moment, they could have said, just get us into the conquest, drive out the enemies and give us a home. But they didn't ask for that. Moses does not request success in battle. Just don't let us die out here of starvation or plague. He doesn't ask for that. Moses needed to be assured that they would have God with them. And I wonder, as we finish chapter 40, if we as the people of God would say, God, the thing we want most is you. I wonder if, if we would claim the promise that to have God and be content is great gain. I wonder if we would get here and say, take the world, just give me Jesus. I, I wonder if we would get here and say, I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. I cast off everything else that might preoccupy me and run forward to the high calling 
of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 37. In all of these things, and all of this trouble and persecution, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angel, nor ruler, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from God in Christ Jesus. Yahweh is the great covenant king. He is the faithful, promise-keeping ruler. He is our God. He hears our cry. He takes pity in our bondage. He will deliver us. But not deliver us to our own doings in the wilderness, to our own bidding, to fall back into sin or to live in the fear of slavery again. In Christ, Yahweh delivers us to himself. Turn your Bibles one last time to Revelation 21. And I want to punctuate our study of Exodus with continuity. From what Moses is allowed to see in heaven, to what is true in the garden, to what is built in the wilderness, to what is built in Jerusalem, to what is being built even now, a holy temple of believers to the Lord, to Revelation 21. We're going to look at three different sections in closing. Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. Sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, Adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Then verse 22. I saw no temple in that city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. For them, it will be the eternal presence 
of God. Let's pray. Father, this revelation is so helpful for the church. You are such a good and wise and providential God. We are wandering in our own wilderness. We are as pilgrims and sojourners. We are as people looking for a better kingdom. And as we wander, we grow by the truth to confess what we need most is you. Father, to see you condescend from the throne of glory to a tent. To see God the Son in humility cast off every equality with you and take upon himself flesh and blood and function as a servant to come live in tents with people who are of tents. To read the conclusion about your promise to be with us forever. By this truth, cause us to walk by faith. Cause us to joyfully be a people to the praise of your glory. When tempted to be preoccupied or be consumed with or distracted or discouraged by all that we don't have. I pray that your spirit through this word that we've studied as a congregation would fortify our confidence that we are wandering through this wilderness toward our everlasting home and eternal presence with you. What an unspeakable gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing.